0: Well, so far, Bear Creek Bible Church has completed preaching and teaching through 42 of the 66 books of the Bible over the last 30 years. And so here are the books that we've gone through so far in the order that they have been presented. And so you can see way up in the top there, there was a time when we didn't give each book a kind of a a title of the series. But then starting with Ruth, we started to do that. And so you can see that covers quite a few years there. And we last last week we wrapped up a 18-month study of the book of Revelation called His Original Intention. And so today we're starting a new series that will last for a few months. <laughs> and um, it's called Profit and Loss. And so it's based upon three of the Old Testament minor prophets that all directed their writings to the southern kingdom of Judah. Okay? So, so far, we've completed 42 of the 66 books, and so with the completion, the assumed completion of Joel, Micah, and Zephaniah, we will get that number up to 45, which, according to my calculations, and again, math is not my strong suit, but I think it's around 68% of the Bible that we've gone through um, at Bear Creek Bible Church, and it's 31 years after the completion of Zephaniah. So, what is Joel all about? And so, in order to understand what Joel is shooting for, we first have to see the big picture of things. Sometimes the Old Testament, considering it's the majority of the Bible, and since it covers many, many years, it can be a little bit intimidating. And it's, of course, the books of the Old Testament are not in chronological order either, which You know, doesn't help a lot, at least in the English Bible, it's not in chronological sequence. Um, So we need to get a a grasp of what the Old Testament is about. So we look at the Old Testament from a 30,000-foot view, getting an overall understanding. And So for those of you who have been studying the Bible for many years, this is repetition, but it's a good reminder. And for those of you who have no clue as to what the bible is about and we have people in both of those categories and most of us are in between um, this is this is a helpful device i think so you look at the old testament and on this chart i want to primarily focus on three dates because or actually four dates because that helps us get a grip and a skeleton ...to what the Old Testament is about. And here are the four dates. If you can remember 2000, 1500, 1000, and around 500 BC... ...you can actually get a good overview of what the Old Testament is about. Four names associated, each associated with one of the dates. 2000, we connect the patriarch Abraham... ...and that is the beginning of the Israelite nation... And then about 500 years later, give or take 50 or 100 years, we have the well-known Old Testament character named Moses. And then 15 or a thousand years before Christ, we can connect David's name to that. And if you can remember, you also got Solomon right after David. And then around 500 years before Christ, we connect the well-known prophet Daniel, okay? So we have Abraham, Moses, David, and Daniel, all right? So we can remember that. And if you can remember those four dates associated with those four names, you have a good skeletal structure of the entire Old Testament, all right? So that's something you can write in your Bibles. That's something that you can even memorize pretty easily, because most of us can remember four dates and four names, all right? So... Moving right along, what is a good overview of the Old Testament? And so you can also put the Old Testament neatly into nine periods. And that's another thing that you can write in your Bible and help you get even a bigger skeletal framework of the Old Testament. Of course, we all know it begins with creation in the book of Genesis. But then also in the last part of the book of Genesis, we get an idea of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and Joseph, and those are the patriarchs, or the, kind of the beginners of the Israelite nation. And of course, the Old Testament is primarily about the nation of Israel, God's covenant chosen people. And so we have creation, we have the patriarchs, and then, through different means, the Israelites wind up in slavery in Egypt, and we all know a little bit, at least, about the story of Moses and how he delivered the Israelite nation out of slavery in Egypt and allowing that nation to wander for 40 years in the desert. But then ultimately through the leadership now of Joshua, who was the um, man who came after Moses in Israel's leadership, conquered the land. So Moses delivered the nation, and that's what his name Moses means. It means to snatch out But then Joshua is the Hebrew name for Jesus, and that means one who delivers, one who who um, saves. And so Joshua conquers the land, and so they go across the River Jordan, and they smash through the center part of the nation. Then they go north and wrap it all up in the conquest of the southern part of the nation of Canaan, which becomes the nation of Israel. But then God allows them to be led by a series of judges. And judges are not monarchs. They are not kings. They were administrators. And that was God's desire for their government. And if you were here in January, I did a two-week series on God's view of human government. So we learned that God's preferred view of human government is a representative form, or a small r, republican form of human government. Not the party, but the form of government. And so the Israelites, being typical human beings, didn't want that. They wanted to be like everybody else. So they said, we want to have a king just like all of the nations around us. And so that's a good lesson in the truth that be careful what you ask for. Because the first king of Israel was Saul, and he was a very poor king. He was effective in certain ways, but he was a man who had a lot of weaknesses And so, but of course after Saul, God was gracious and gave Israel David. And David was really the high point of the history of the nation of Israel. At least up to this point it is. And so we had a united kingdom called Israel. But then after Solomon's passing, Israel divided up into two kingdoms and they became weaker. Israel to the north and Judah to the south. In fact, Joel directs his writings to the southern kingdom of Judah. Other prophets focus on Israel. Other prophet, another prophet, Obadiah, focused on a foreign nation called Edom. And so the Old Testament prophets, they directed their writings to different people groups for them to respond properly to God. And so Israel was divided into two kingdoms, obviously as a result becoming weaker. And so they were easy pickings for other stronger nations. And so Israel fell in 722 B.C. to the kingdom of Assyria. And then about 140 years or so later, in 586 B.C., Judah was conquered by Babylon, eventually becoming um, conquered by Persia. So then they went into a long period of exile, but then through God's grace and foreign kings, the grace of foreign kings, Israel was allowed to return to the land, specifically to the city of Jerusalem, and we see Zerubbabel, Ezra, and Nehemiah leading that charge to get God's people back to the land. And so that is an overview, just a few minutes, of the entire history of the Old Testament and under those nine periods. So... What about Joel? What about him? He directed his writings to Judah. You can see the other prophets who actually wrote things down, because there was another group of prophets who didn't write their stuff down. They were, they followed more oral tradition, but we have the records of these prophets as recorded in the Old Testament toward Assyria, Edom, Israel, and most of them to the southern kingdom of Judah. He was most likely a contemporary of Elijah and Elisha and prophesied probably during Jehoshaphat's reign or his grandson, the king Joash. And the timing of Joel, we don't know when he wrote, but most commentators kind of lean toward an early view of Joel writing. Okay, So here you have reflected again the division of the northern kingdom as well as the southern kingdom. And you see here the period of, of exile for the southern kingdom but joel was one of the earliest he is one of, in fact some say he was the first minor prophet to write to the kingdom of judah which was the southern kingdom so what about some observations and a brief outline of the book of joel well joel doesn't give us a lot of detail about himself He doesn't say much about himself, he just says who his father is. Some commentators say that Joel was one of the sons of Samuel, and that's plausible but probably unlikely. Um, His name is Joel, and that is a pretty easy name to figure out because the J sound is Jehovah, and the L sound comes from Elohim, so it means Jehovah is God. Um, he prophesied most likely in Jerusalem, because there's some references in just these, this short three-chapter book, to the sanctuary, which would be the temple. And um, so most likely he prophesied in Jerusalem to the southern kingdom. He was probably one of the earliest prophets and maybe prophesied around 830 years before Christ. That's what the term BC means, before Christ. And so you see some historians use the terms B.C. and A.D., and that's kind of being phased out a little bit in a lot of secular literature. It's, it's uh, called B.C.E. now, which stands for Before Common Era, but we still use B.C. and A.D. here at Berkeley Bible Church. And um, A.D. A. is Latin for Anno Domina, which means uh, after the time, or in the year of our Lord. And so um, there are... There's also the outline of the book, too. I like brief outlines, so you have a shot at remembering the structure of a book. And uh, making a brief outline of Joel is really easy because it's such a short book. It's only three chapters. And so the first chapter is a section in and of itself, and it tells us about a very recent day of the Lord, which is a term you're going to hear a lot about in the book of Joel. It's all about... The day of the Lord. What is a day of the Lord? Well, we'll build that out a little bit as we go further into the book, but for now, suffice it to say that the day a day of the Lord or a day of the Lord is a period of time when it is very evident that God is working in the affairs of men and women and boys and girls. Right? And so it means also that God will judge his enemies and that God will discipline and care for and forgive and bless his people. right? So we'll see that in the book of Joel. So the first four verses tell a little bit about this very recent event that took place in the life and times of the nation of Israel through the devastation of a locust infestation. And um, so what Joel does is he wants to stir up the people to connect that day of the Lord, that discipline against Israel, to the work of God, because the context of Joel is that even God's people seem to have spiritual attention deficit disorder; they, they they're they're insensitive to the phenomenon that is going on around them. They don't seem to be that clued into or connected in a vibrant fellowship with God because they're so happy with the prosperity of their lives. They feel like "Mm, you know we don't even really need God but you know what we're Israelites so what we'll do is we'll continue to check all the boxes and follow all the formalism of our religion and be proud of our ethnicity. And so Joel's point is, I'm going to break through that in sensitivity and make sure that people see that what's going on through this locust infestation has something to do with God's discipline of the people that he dearly loves. And so the second one is about a near future day of the Lord, because God's not done yet. In fact, he's just getting started, because what's going to happen is that Israel, the northern kingdom, is going to be swallowed up by a foreign power called Assyria. That'll be the second day of the Lord in the book of Joel. But then there's yet a third day of the Lord as well, and that is the far future. Capital D, capital D, big D day of the Lord, which you and I studied just a few months ago as we experienced the book of Revelation. So much of the Old Testament has to do with the day of the Lord. This, there's a lot of small-D days of the Lord, and two of them are mentioned here in the book of Joel, but then there's a strong, obvious, clear reference to a major, capital, big-D day of the Lord that's going to go down at some future point in human history. In fact, John Fetter's class is talking largely about that during the Sunday school hour. And so this is the thrust of the book of Joel. The people just don't seem to be getting it. They had so much prosperity, and Joel was connecting the locust plague to God's response to their insensitivity toward him. They were checking all the boxes. They had all the formalism. They were doing the rituals right. But God didn't have their hearts, and he wants your heart as well. And you might say, well, yeah, that's what believers need to do in order to become believers. No, God doesn't want your pre-salvific heart because it's not worth anything. But once we place our faith alone in Christ alone and we trust in him for the forgiveness of our sin, we are reignited, we are ignited with life for the first time in our existence. Then you have a heart. Then you have a life. So it's not giving up your life to get saved. But rather, it's giving God back your life once you are saved. Because then you really do have a life. Then you do really have a heart that God wants. And so for believers, it's a it's a continual giving of our hearts or the seat of our will, of our lives, back to God. That's the thing that we have to continually do. Not to maintain our salvation, but to maintain our fellowship and our sanctification with God. Thanks be to God that our justification or our salvation is based upon his character. Otherwise, we'd all be in really bad shape. But our fellowship and our sanctification um, is really up to us to cooperate with God so we continue to receive our post-salvation blessings. And so the people were just not getting it. Tom Constable, a professor or who was a professor at Dallas Seminary, gave this summary as the message of Joel. He said, though God will judge Israel for her apostasy with locust invasion um, in the future, he will also later restore her to blessings greater than she has ever experienced, illustrating that he governs the world graciously. There's that theme again. That God is gracious. He's got really high standards. But he's also very gracious. And he'll get us there through his graces. And not through our self-effort. So God is gracious. And that's the way he governs the world. Through his grace. And so, what about um, an exposition? Or rather, the themes and the purposes of The book. Okay. That God is sovereign and guiding the affairs of the world to his ultimate goals. He is gracious and forgiving. In fact, he's really good at forgiving. That's what he does. He allows us to be forgiven through the sacrifice of Jesus. It's God's riches that are available to us at the expense of Christ. That's a really good acronym for the word grace. God's riches at Christ's expense. He's really good at forgiving because he allows us to be forgiven. He's eager to forgive us and he provides the means by which you and I can be forgiven. So he is gracious and forgiving. Judah's insensitivity to God is the biggest issue in the book. And I submit to you this morning that I think that the condition of Judah's insensitivity is very similar to the insensitivity and the cavalier attitude that much of the church has toward God in the 21st century. Yeah, we still identify with Christ. Uh, Yeah, we we want your salvation. Um, But, you know, I'm not really sure that I'm going to give you my heart. I'm not sure I'm going to allow you to set the agenda for my life, God. I want the salvation, I want the forgiveness, I want the fellowship, I want the worship, and I want to be able to check all the boxes, but I'm not really sure that I want you intervening in my life all that much. That was the attitude of Judah, and I think that's the attitude of a lot of believers in this world today as well. That rituals only take you so far. Formalism only takes you so far. And you might say, man, I'm sure glad that the church got rid of all of the fuddy-duddiness. You know, we're not formal at all anymore. But actually, in the 21st century, we have a new form of ritual. We have what's called the church of entertainment. You know, and I know many of you have come from such churches, and I'm not criticizing them, but I am being critical of some of the things, some of the circus-like atmosphere Of some churches. It's like just done to be more humanistic and man-centered instead of being God-centered. In fact, Travis and I have a little joke that we share with each other once in a while about, like, you know, you know, we don't have a smoke machine here at Bear Creek Bible Church. You go to some churches and there's, like, smoke with a certain type of music playing and, and you can see the lights coming through the smoke and it creates like an atmosphere, supposedly a spiritual atmosphere. Well, that's all fake, really. That's really fake. It's artificial. And we say, yeah, we've, our smoke machine has been broken for 30 years and we don't intend on getting it fixed either. And so we've replaced a certain type of ritual and formalism with another type of artificial atmosphere. It just it seems to be our tendency to want to produce some sort of formalism so that way we can check the boxes and say, yeah, we're religious. You know, we want to be identified with Christ to a certain degree, but we do not want to give him our hearts. We do not want him intervening in our lives to tell us to do things that we really don't want to do and to not do things that we know we shouldn't do. It goes both ways. Sins of commission and sins of omission. A lot of times they're not behavioral sins, but they're attitudinal sins. So we've got to be submissive before God and say, God, you tell me what to do. Like, like when was the last time that you and I allowed Scripture to tell us not to do something and we didn't do it? You know? Or Scripture told us to do something, and we went ahead and did it, even though we didn't want to do it. You see, in the Christian framework, that is normal, to change our behavior, to change our beliefs, to conform to what God wants. Otherwise, you know what God's going to do. We don't do that. Is He going to destroy us? No. But He will discipline us and Sometimes His discipline seems like punishment, but it's actually quite different, but we'll get into that in a minute. Discipline is necessary for God's people. God will use the days of the Lord to redirect His people, and also at the same time, in the same movement frequently, He will punish His enemies. We saw that in the book of Revelation, where God is determined to set things right. God is absolutely determined to restore his original intention. But then another great feature of the book of Joel is that God will pour out his spirit in the latter days, which, which we will see. So that brings us to the first four verses of the book of Joel, and let's read them. Joel chapter one, verses one through four. It says this at the word of the Lord that came to Joel, son of Pethuel. Hear this, you elders. Listen, all who live in the land. Has anything like this ever happened in your days or in the days of your forefathers? Tell it to your children and let your children tell it to their children and their children to the next generation. What the locust swarm has left, the great locusts have eaten What the great locusts have left, the young locusts have eaten. What the young locusts have left, other locusts have eaten. So what does Joel do here in the first chapter? He talks to five different groups of people. Five different groups or demographics. The first group that he talks to, he labels as the elders. The people who are the older folks who've been around for a really long time and can remember some of Israel's recent history. And these people are also have some authority or are like to categorize them as the influencers of their day. You know, now we have people who are social media influencers, people in their sphere of influence on Instagram or another social media platform. They might have an influence to several thousand or 10,000 people, and then different companies pay them to push their product amongst that relatively small group. And so the elders were the influencers of their day. So he starts with them. And he asks them a question in verse 3, and it says, Tell it to your children. Or uh, the second part of verse 2, sorry, it says, Has anything like this ever happened in your days or in the days of your forefathers? And older people, now that I'm older, I'm years old, and so I could like, include myself in this group now. And if you ask a question, tell us about the old days, Pop Pop. Oh, we love to be asked that question, because we'll always answer in a similar way. We'll say, I used to have to walk to school 20 miles in the snow and the rain with volcanoes and 20 miles uphill both ways. We had it really tough. You people, this generation, you Xers or you Millennials or you Zs, you have it so easy compared to my day being a baby boomer. You know. <laughs> and so the question would be hard for the older people to answer. Because he asks them that question, has anything like this ever happened in your days or in the days of your forefathers? They'll have to say, "Mm, no, it's that locust plague. I've never, ever seen anything like it. And I think he was playing into that, because if you heard an older person say, no, the people today have it a lot harder than I had it, that's the complete opposite of what your expectations are. And that's exactly what Joel, I believe, wanted to highlight. That this locust plague was something that was abnormal. It was something that we have never experienced in all of our lifetimes. And that's exactly right. The first group he spoke to were the elders of the land, the influencers who were respected, and they would be able to authenticate exactly the point that he was trying to communicate. You have never seen anything worse, right? Uh, I guess so. I guess that's the case. The locusts had scorched the earth. The repetition in verse 4 it's a very unusual verse. It shows successive waves of locusts. With the one wave left, the next swarm would devour. They would gnaw. They would swarm. They would creep. And they would strip. Oh, just talking about insects. Are you getting all itchy? Where's my raid? You know, I want to kill all these disgusting little insects. The devastation was so great. That there just has to be something up. Uh, it's not normal. I mean, the ten plagues, of which the locusts were one of the ten plagues, that was 400 years before. This is not business as usual. So let me tell you, Joel would say, God is working. He's doing something. And the locusts, that's just the first thing that God's going to do. So as a result, what you should do, influencers, elders, is to tell it to your children and let your children tell it to their children and their children to the next generation. That's the takeaway. That's the application. That's what we should do. That's what we should think about how to do and then actually do it. Because what's happening here, Joel would highlight, is that Israel in his day and age, is transitioning from the day of man to the day of the Lord. And you should know what that means. That God is disciplining his people, Israel. And God also disciplines us as believers in the church age as well, in which we are. So what do we do with this? Well, the point, we should reflect on and relate to others how God has disciplined us. That's what we owe the next generation. So even if you're middle-aged, tell the younger ones. If you're an older person, tell the middle-aged and even tell the younger generation. Relate your experiences, and how you have seen God work, specifically how God has disciplined you over the years. You might say, well, that sounds kind of harsh. That's kind of negative. God molds us through hardship and correction. That's exactly why you're going through the disappointment and the stress and the hardship right now. He's wearing off your rough edges. You might interpret it as punishment, but... He's not punishing you. If you're a believer, you're not being punished. You're being disciplined, and the it's, it's two worlds are completely opposite. He, he disciplines those he loves. In Hebrews chapter 12, the writer of Hebrews says this. He says, moreover, we have all had human fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the Father of spirits and live? So when you were a little guy or gal, you didn't like being redirected by your parents. But in hindsight, or maybe even at the time or shortly thereafter, you had a sense of security, boundaries, that my dad and mom, or my dad or my mom, they really care about me because they're redirecting me, they're correcting what could be calamity if I continue on in this form and fashion. So what's the difference, then, between punishment and discipline? Well, like I've said before, frequently his discipline seems like punishment, but yet the character and goals of the two are completely opposite. Um, The purpose is to inflict penalty for an offense But discipline is to train for correction and maturity. The benefit of punishment is for the victim. And so if you see a trial take place and the family of a slain person hears the verdict of the jury that the murderer of their son or daughter or parents or whoever is found guilty And they're not necessarily happy, but at least they have a sense of completion, that there's justice now. So it's for the benefit of the victim. But discipline is for the benefit of the perpetrator. And so the focus under punishment is on the past misdeeds of the person. But for discipline, the purpose is future-oriented. It's correction. So that way, this little person doesn't keep making bad choices. So that way, their future choices are actually good. The attitude of the two is completely opposite, too, because punishment causes hostility and frustration and anger. But discipline produces, according to the writer of Hebrews, love and concern that overrides possible anger or short-term anger. It's there for peace, and it's there for the increased righteousness of that person and their character and also their abilities to manage life and to interact in a healthy way with other people. And so the resulting emotion for punishment is fear because I'm going to get punished, and so therefore I'm afraid I'm going to run away. But for discipline, it's completely the opposite. It's not that I'm looking forward to the discipline, but I'm looking forward to the results of discipline. And so I have security because I am vulnerable And I need somebody more powerful and more wise than me to help me navigate through life. And so the two are completely different. Although oftentimes it's very common for Christians to blend the two and think that God is punishing us. And again, his discipline sometimes seems like punishment, but it is not. It is characterized more accurately as discipline. And so God was allowing Israel to experience this locust infestation, this harsh plague. So that way, hopefully, they will turn away from their ways. They will give God their hearts and not just their behavior, not just the checklist being checked. But rather, we will turn our hearts toward God and say, God, what is it That you want. How should I adjust? How should I change my beliefs? How should I change my attitude? How should I change my behavior? I want to be in alignment with your will. I give you the seat of my will. My heart. So that way I am in conformity with you. And that's the beginning of wisdom. That's the beginning of inner peace. As one simply begins to obey God. You and I have the tendency to go astray in two very opposite ways. And for purposes of illustration, I use the parable of our Lord, the prodigal son. You and I have the tendency to either be the prodigal son himself or his counterpart, the older brother. They were both equally messed up, but messed up in completely opposite ways. The prodigal son, he was clearly guilty of sins of commission. He demanded his inheritance, and he went and lived a wild life for a period of time, and then ultimately paid the price for that as he ended up in a pigsty, humiliated. He crawled back to his father, hoping that his father would be willing to be reconciled and reconnected to him. He was guilty of the sins of commission, but the older brother, his sins were a little more subtle, you could say. Uh, In the church or a religious environment, his sins were a little bit more acceptable, but nonetheless equally devastating. The older brother would be guilty of sins of omission, While outwardly loyal, he did not choose to forgive and love his younger brother. One would be guilty of sins of commission, horrible, but yet that was his category. The older brother would be guilty of sins of omission. He would not do the right thing. We know how the story turns out for the younger brother, but then we're kind of left holding the bag with the older brother. Hopefully, he would get it. Joel approaches Israel with the same attitude. I'm going to preach to you. I'm going to teach you. I'm going to make my case to you, Judah. That You just experienced the first round of devastation with the locusts. That's the first phase of God's discipline. You don't have to experience the second phase. You can repent. You can turn from your destructive ways. You can give God your heart, still worship Him, still be religious, but with giving God your heart. He wants both your head and your heart and your actions. He wants it all. He deserves it. It's best for Him. It certainly is best for us too. Give God your heart and tell future generations so they will learn from our mistakes And that applies to me too. When I was in my early twenties. So the text is telling us, tell other people about your disciplinary experiences. So I gotta follow the scripture too. I have to apply it as well. So when I was in my early twenties, I had an arrogant attitude toward God. I said, God, I don't think that, I believe in you, but I don't think your word is really the word of God. I have doubts about it, but God then disciplined me through a series of broken relationships that got my attention big time. And that's my short, summarized, disciplinary experience to where my heart of stone became a heart of flesh in just a few months because God got my attention. And, and, and I knew in the deepest part of my soul where that discipline was coming from. But he was so gracious. Just like in the book of Joel, he would restore that which I had lost, but he would restore it sevenfold, and even more than that, a thousand, a millionfold, because he's gracious He gives us what we do not deserve. He gives us the good things that we cannot possibly even put a down payment on, let alone completely pay for. But then He's also merciful. He doesn't give us what we do deserve. That is our God. That's the God who is willing to go after you. That's the God who is a good Father, all wise, all loving, all gracious, but also at the same time without a hint of contradiction. Is also all righteous. That's the God of Scripture. Judah, Bear Creek Bible Church people, please follow him, not just with your behavior, but also with your heart. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that we would choose to ratchet down our hard hearts and convert them into soft, fleshy hearts, ones that can be influenced, ones that that are properly equipped to receive your love and your graces, and then also, in one movement from the vertical, become the horizontal. Help us, Father, not just to believe in a bunch of theology, which might be true, but help us allow to transition that theology into biography. Help us to be gracious like you. Help us to be forgiving. Help us to be pliable and receptive like you as well. We pray this in the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit, and together God's people said, Amen.
1: Amen. I invite you to stand as we join together response. Christ alone, Christ alone, for it's our only confidence that our souls to Faith when fears rise